up in the church, these are a familiar story uh, from the Philippian jailer and the Apostle Paul. So let me read Acts 16, 25 through 31, and uh, you can follow along. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to, to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. Let's uh, let's pray this morning, shall we? Lord, we are so thankful that uh, we can spend the first Sunday of a new year in your house. And Lord, while there's uncertainty, always uncertainty about the future, remember the the, the statement: "Never be afraid to trust the unknown future to a known God." Lord, while we don't know what tomorrow holds, we thank you that you do and that we can trust you. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of uh, looking into your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we do, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to what you have for us today. Lord, we pray that we would be changed because we've been here, that we will make some decisions about moving forward in our Christian walk and being a witness to you and following the light and the lamp of your word. So bless us today, and we will thank you for what you are about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, one other uh, announcement I, I forgot to make has to do with next Sunday. And so uh, next Sunday we're going to have a, a missionary guest with us here. Well, we're going to jump into the book of Acts, and that's where we've been. We're in chapter 16, so we're a little more than halfway through the book of Acts, and so let me kind of bring us up to speed. Uh, the book of Acts covers a period of about 30 years, uh, from 30 A.D. to 60 A.D., and the book of Acts is the history of the early church, the, the birth and the growth and the spread of the early church. So Acts chapter 1 begins with the ascension of Jesus. For 40 days, he made uh, post-resurrection appearances, and then he ascended to heaven. And uh, he made that great promise as the uh, disciples are looking at Jesus elevating up to heaven. And uh, the angels said, uh, just as he went up to heaven, he's coming back again someday. And uh, that's a great uh, truth to hang on to. But Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for 10 days. What were they waiting for? Well, they were in an upper room. They were praying. They were waiting. And what were they waiting for? And it happened 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost. The word penta means 50. And it was the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit came on that day of Pentecost, and the church was born. And Peter stands up, and here's Peter, who just a few weeks earlier had denied that he even knew Jesus three times, but now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has restored him. He preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people come into the, the church. And the book of Acts then traces uh, the growth of the early church. The key verse, and it's really the outline of the book, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
Let me read it. Uh, this is uh, Jesus' words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Here's the outline of the book. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is all about, written by Dr. Luke, and he traces the growth of the church. It started in Jerusalem. That's uh, Acts chapter 1 through 7. Talks about uh, the gospel making inroads in Jerusalem. But then what happened? Persecution came. A man by the name of Saul became the chief persecutor of the church. And so to stay in Jerusalem as a Christian was to really risk your life. And so many Christians scattered in the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. And as they scattered, they shared the gospel and the church grew. And that's chapters 8 through 12. Talks about the gospel making inroads into Judea and Samaria. Well, in chapters 13 through 28, the rest of the book is what? The gospel going to the ends of the earth. And how did the gospel go to the ends of the earth? Well, it was through the Apostle Paul, primarily. Jesus had given some instructions, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so Paul makes three missionary journeys. We've already looked at one of them. And this morning we're going to look at missionary trip number two. Uh, from Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and uh, we will uh, look at at least the first part of Paul's second missionary journey. So here's the, here's the context of uh, Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to pick it up in Acts 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So Paul had made one missionary trip. Now some time goes by and he says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back and, and see how those believers are doing. See how those churches are doing. And so that was the plan, but there came a little point of contention between Paul and Barnabas because Paul wanted to take John Mark on the missionary trip. That was Barnabas's cousin. And when uh, when when Bar- Barnabas rather wanted to take John Mark, um, Paul said, no way. If you remember from missionary journey number one, what happened with uh, John Mark on that missionary trip? He bailed on him. We don't know why, but uh, a short time after their missionary journey, he leaves and goes back home. And Paul says, I'm not taking him. He quit on us. And so it says in the text, a sharp disagreement came between Paul and Barnabas And so what happened is they kind of split ways. Barnabas takes his cousin John Mark. They go on a missionary trip. And what does Paul do? Paul chooses a man by the name of Silas. And now Paul and Silas go on missionary trip number two. Now, in your bulletin, you should have a handout with a little yellow line, and that's going to be our journey this morning as we read through the text, this is this is the first part of their trip, and we're going to cover it through um, to where they get to Philippi. And uh, so they start out in Antioch, where the little asterisk is, and then they make their way to Troas, 785 miles. Then they get on a boat, and they make their way ultimately to Philippi. That was another 130 miles. So this first part of the trip is 915 miles, probably walking a lot of it and taking a boat by some of it. 
and it would have taken months just to cover this first part of the trip. Uh, their, their total trip, and if you can kind of look at that map and they kind of come full circle, total of 3,000 miles. Now, we can travel that easily today. Nine and I on our trip to southern Georgia, 2,000 miles in, in a week. Um, but that would have been tough sledding traveling in the first century. One of the things that helped Paul and Silas and that spread the gospel message was the Roman road system. The, Roman, the Romans had developed a tremendous system of roads that made it very, very easy, much easier to, to travel. And that helped facilitate the spread of the gospel. Well, let's look at uh, the text here in uh, Acts chapter 16. And our outline has, starts with the strengthening of the churches, the strengthening of the churches. Uh, verse 41 of chapter 15, so they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then uh, chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. So now they're retracing their first route of their missionary journey. When it says that Paul came to Lystra, um, if you remember back missionary journey number one, you remember what happened at Lystra? Uh, Paul was there on a mission trip. It wasn't going well. The people didn't like what he was saying. They dragged Paul out of the city and they stoned him and left him for dead. I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, I might be saying, um, I'm not sure I'm going back there. Paul, Paul was determined. And he, so he goes back to Lystra. And in Lystra is a, is the text says, a disciple named Timothy who lived there. So now we're introduced to Timothy. He's also known as Paul's son in the faith. Timothy probably came to know Christ during Paul's first missionary journey. And when he's in Lystra, the believers are all talking about glowingly about Timothy and how he's grown in his faith. And so Paul wants to take Timothy along on the journey, and he does that. And it says that they travel from town to town. Verse 4, they delivered decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew in numbers. So Paul, now Silas and Timothy are retracing their steps, and they're ministering at churches, and they're encouraging believers. Well, the next uh, part in our outline uh, is the sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And this is verses 6 through 10. We read, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What is going on there? How is Paul and the missionary team deciding where to go? And the only thing I can say is the Spirit of God's leading them. And they are very sensitive to the Spirit's direction in their life. And I hope all of us are as well. We're either living a self-directed life or we're in tune to God and his spirit directing us and guiding us and giving us wisdom. And so it says the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. Now, what does that look like? Did the spirit of Jesus speak audibly to them? I don't know. But for some reason, Paul and Silas and Timothy knew we're not to go there. When God closes a door, he always opens another door. 
And so as we go through the, the text here, so, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul has a vision at night. And it's a dream and a vision. And here's a man that's saying, hey, we need help over here. Come to Macedonia. And so they get up the next morning and discover that's God's direction in their life. And they head to, to Macedonia, hop on a boat from Troas and travel up to Macedonia. Now, what's interesting is you read the text carefully here in verse 10. Uh, and Dr. Luke's the author after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once. So here, Dr. Luke in, uh, joins the missionary team. So now there's, there's four of them. And so here they are. And uh, uh, our next uh, part of our outline has to do with the salvation of Lydia. So here, uh, verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, if you follow Paul's missionary journeys, he had a very specific pattern of how he approached his ministry to uh, these various cities. Where did Paul usually start? And the answer to that question is the synagogue. Paul would find a Jewish synagogue in a city, and, and that's where he would, he, he would go. And, be, and begin his ministry. Here in Philippi, he does not go to the synagogue because um, there probably were not many Jews in Philippi. In order to have a synagogue in a city, you had to have at least 10 male heads of households together to form a synagogue. So there's no synagogue. So what does Paul do? Paul looks for um, a place of prayer. And he finds some women having a prayer meeting by a river on the Sabbath. The Gangites River is about a mile outside of Philippi. And so uh, on the Sabbath, verse 13, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So here's this businesswoman. Her name's Lydia. She was at this, this prayer meeting on this uh, banks of this river on the Sabbath. It says she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Lydia, what, puts her faith in Christ as Paul and the missionary team ministers. And she then becomes the first European convert. It was this businesswoman, Lydia. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here's Lydia, and she invites now the missionary team to stay at her house. Lydia becomes a charter member of the church at Philippi. In fact, probably the church met in her house. For the first 300 years of Christianity, there were no buildings like we are in. The church met in people's homes. And so here's Lydia, who becomes a key part of uh, the church at Philippi. And we're going to see a little bit later another family that became a charter member of the church at Philippi, uh, the Philippian jailer. 
So let's transition to his story as uh, Paul relates a very unusual incident that happened while he was in Philippi. And I know we're reading a lot of text here, but we got to get the flow of the story here. And uh, this is an encounter with a demonic spirit, an encounter with a demonic spirit. So Dr. Luke writes, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So uh, here's this young girl in slavery. And because she has a demonic spirit, she's able to predict the future. And these owners are, are making a lot of money off of this demon-filled girl who can predict the future. Dr. Luke writes, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Hard to picture the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, getting annoyed. But this slave girl's annoying the Apostle Paul. He doesn't want people to get confused with the truth of the gospel, and he doesn't need the witness of a demon. And so she's following him and, 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 and making these statements. And so Paul becomes so annoyed, he turns around and he said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Remember the verse that says, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world? Now, I've never had direct encounter with um, people who are um, demon-controlled, but I've heard a lot of stories, uh, one, some from my theology professor, uh, some from uh, my friend Greg Speck, who have had one-on-one -on -one encounters with people who are demon-possessed and... Uh, Kind of scares the bejeebers out of me to think about that. But um, if you ever have that, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So what's Paul doing? In the name of Jesus, I cast you out. And the demon comes out of her. It says that at that moment, the spirit left her. But now they've got another problem. The uh, owners aren't very happy because it's affecting their pocketbooks. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And so they come up with these charges against Paul and Silas. These people are creating commotion uh, these two individuals are advocating things that the, the Romans wouldn't like. And uh, uh, we know that um, Pax Romana was a big thing, that uh, the Romans liked peace. This is a, a Roman colony. It says the crowd joined in to attack Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Later on, as we read in our scripture reading, he, he actually fell asleep, but maybe he had some other guards that were watching him. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. 
And so here's Paul and Silas. And uh, you might think, well, what about Luke and Timothy? How come we don't read about Luke and Timothy? Well, Luke and Timothy were, were Greeks. Luke was a Greek. Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother was a Jew. So perhaps they just chose Paul and Silas because they were Jews. Maybe there was some racial bias here. I, I don't know. But they take Paul and Silas. They arrest them. They strip them. They beat them and flog them and put them into jail and put their feet in stocks. And uh, a little later on, and we won't get we won't get to this part this morning, but uh, uh, there was no trial or, or uh, any system of justice here. When they get out, Paul calls them on the carpet and says, "Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, you, you didn't. You should have had a trial for me." Paul's standing up for his, his rights like, uh, you, you did wrong. And so here they are, uh, seized, dragged to face the authorities, pronounced guilty without a trial, stripped, beaten, flogged in the inner cell, feet in stocks. And what would you expect to read in the next verse? If it was me, I'd be saying, Lord, um, what have I done to deserve this? Is this what serving you gets... Or, uh, I, I'm turned in my missionary badge. This is too much. Who am I to deserve this kind of treatment? And actually, the next verse is one of the most remarkable verses in all the Bible, I think. Verses 25 and following, we read about praying and singing hymns at midnight. <laughs> oh, what are Paul and Silas doing? It's midnight. They've been wrongfully treated, wrongfully arrested, beaten, and put their feet in stocks. And this is about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And they were singing hymns to God. I don't think the prisoners that were in there were used to hearing that. They were probably used to hearing prisoners cursing God. And now you've got two fellows that have been thrown into prison, and they are praying And they are singing hymns to God at midnight. And it says in the text, the other prisoners were listening to them. You want to get people's attention in our world today as a Christian? Go through hard times and do it well. Go through hard times and... And, and as difficult it is, is, when you go through hard times and you have your faith in God and you're not mad at God and cursing God... All of a sudden, it gets people's attention. And it sets up a platform to share your faith. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is all about. Always be ready to give an answer when people ask for the hope that is within you. Be ready to give a witness. And in the context of 1 Peter, that's written in the context of suffering well for Jesus. Because when you suffer well for Jesus, you get people's attention. Well, Paul and Silas are singing and praying at midnight, and then God intervenes. If you're with us through the study of the book of Acts, when Peter was in prison a few chapters earlier, it was an angel that showed up and quietly ushered him out of prison. In Paul's case, he used another method, a more dramatic method, and it was an earthquake. And so let's read about it. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, 
At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Uh, if, you were, if you were in charge of the prison and one of your prisoners escaped, you were going to die. That You would suffer the death penalty for that. So earthquake, the, the jailer sees the doors open. He just assumes, I'm going to die anyway. Uh, they're going to put me to death. I'll just hasten the process. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushing in and felt trembling before Paul and Silas He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized, probably in the middle of the night. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What a remarkable, remarkable story. Here's the jailer that uh, might have been involved in, in beating them, and now what's he doing? Uh, he's, he's washing their wounds and, and, uh, and helping, helping them because his whole family has come to faith in Christ. Well, that's the missionary journey number two as far as Philippi. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up um, and finish missionary number, uh, the rest of the trip number two probably next Sunday. But um, let's look at some life lessons as we wrap this up in the next 10 minutes or so this morning. Uh, four life lessons from Acts chapter 16. So Paul and Silas take this missionary journey. What's their goal? Their goal is to strengthen the churches. Uh, that was Paul's stated goal, and it says in verse 41, they went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Um, and in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, so the churches were strengthened in faith. And our first life lesson is this, we need to be continually strengthened in our faith, in our walk with God. We need to be continually strengthened in our walk with God. So a new year comes, and... Um, Lots of people make lots of commitments and decisions for a new year, New Year's resolutions. Most popular one has to do with health. And uh, people want to live healthy. And so they make New Year's resolutions uh, to have a healthier New Year. And uh, the key to good health physically is, uh, in some areas, diet and exercise. And there's lots of uh, New Year's resolutions r- around that. I want to suggest to you this morning that... Um, our faith needs to be strengthened. And how do we strengthen our faith? Well, it's the same two principles through diet and exercise. Diet being the study of God's Word, the intake of God's Word. Uh, the navigators in their ministry talk about five ways that you can um, respond and take in God's Word. You can hear God's Word. Romans ten seventeen talks about hearing God's Word. That's what we're doing this morning. You can read God's Word, Revelation 1-3. Blessed are those who read the words in this book. You can study God's Word. We'll discover the Bereans in, uh, next Sunday. Uh, the Bereans searched the Scriptures daily, and they studied God's Word. You can memorize God's Word, 
Psalm 119, verse 9. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We can meditate on God's word. Many ways to get God's word into our life. And uh, if we're going to be strengthened in our spiritual life, we're going to have to be exposed to a regular intake of God's word. Regular intake of God's word. So this morning, I hope you have a hope you have a, a, a plan. I hope you have a, a Bible reading plan. I hope you have a Bible study plan. I hope you're intentional in in making commitments to hear, read, study, meditate, and memorize on God's word. But how else are you strengthened? It's through exercise. And uh, by that we mean, uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you have a spiritual gift. And someday we're going to stand before God and give an account of what we've done with what he's entrusted to us. One of the questions that uh, I think is going to be on the final exam, and, and this is not for our salvation. This is, this is for rewards or loss of rewards. Um, what have you done with the gift that I gave you, your spiritual gift? There's some parables in the Bible about that. Did you just bury it or did you use it? Alan's testimony this morning is a great testimony of someone who lets God lead him and says, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. And so how do we grow? How are we strengthened individually and as a church when we get exposed to God's word and then we get active in in serving the Lord? Life lesson number two is this, the simplicity of the gospel. Did you catch that in Acts 16.31? Here's the jailer and he says, what must I do to be saved? What do Paul and Silas say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, what, do, what does the word belief mean? It's, I looked it up. It's the Greek word pistuus. It means faith. And it, it doesn't mean to intellectually acknowledge that Jesus Christ existed as a historical person, although he did. But that's not what it means to believe, to have faith. To have faith in Jesus means to understand who he is that he's the Son of God, that he's the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God, Lamb of God. And it's to believe in not only who he is, but what he's done. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and to put our faith in him and him alone. But I'm struck with the simplicity of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul Writing to the Roman believers, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, what was the requirement in the Roman Empire? They had to say, Caesar's Lord. And if you were to say, Jesus is Lord, uh, you put yourself in direct uh, opposition to uh, the Roman government and the, the, the powers that be. But if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The simplicity of the gospel, so many people make it so complicated. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's not about doing. It's what I've already done. And you just need to put your faith in me and who I am and what I've done, and you'll be saved. In fact, Jesus said, unless you become as a little child. And what does he mean by that? Childlike faith you won't enter the kingdom of God. 
And so the simplicity of the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Life lesson number three is this. Suffering is often a part of God's plan in our lives. Suffering is often a part of God's plan in our life. And so we read that all through, all through Scripture, that um, how does God change us? How does God, unfortunately, get our attention sometimes? Oftentimes it's through suffering. With C.S. Lewis that said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When you're going through suffering, God's got your attention. And oftentimes he uses that in our life to, to mold us. Psalm 119 Verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I was kind of doing my own thing. And then some affliction came on me, and now I obey your word. God, you got my attention. And suffering is often a part of God's plan for our lives. And certainly Paul and Silas experienced that, didn't they? They were, they were innocent. They were just sharing the gospel, and they got beaten to a pulp and put in jail. And uh, that was part of, of God's, God's plan. The whole book of First Peter, the theme is pain with a purpose. And that's one of the things that as believers, when we go through pain and suffering, we, we know, uh, although we don't always understand, we know that God somehow has a purpose. Uh, we may not understand immediately what that purpose is, but we know he has a purpose. First Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. God's got a plan. And often the, the, the plan is the road of suffering. Well, lastly, and then we're going to close with an um, appropriate video here that I think will encourage us. And here's number four. And uh, this, I will just say, is uh, not easy to do. This is not a uh, beginning course in Christianity. This is, this is graduate-level Christianity, but here it is. We must learn to praise God in the storms of life. I mean, it's easy to, when everything's going well, it's, it's easy to... Oh, yeah, thank you, God, and praise God, and the bank account's full, and the job's going well, and relationship's going well, and I've got my health, the kids are doing well. But that's not real life, is it? And so just like Paul and Silas, who their backs were bleeding and their ankles were in stocks, and what are they doing? Let's pray. Let's sing hymns to God. And they praise God in the storms of life. And as I said, when you do that, you get the attention of other people. That was Job. What did Job go through? Horrific stuff. What did Job say? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Although Job had his dark moments as well. 
before I got to that point, he said, I've cursed, cursed the day that I was born. Uh, we think of uh, the book of Habakkuk that, that talks about uh, though the fields are empty and, and the crops haven't produced and there's no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice and praise God because I know God's in control. And that's Paul and Silas, bleeding, beaten, unfairly treated in prison. Let's pray and give God praise. Someone has said we're either coming into a storm in life or we're in the middle of a storm in life or we're coming out of a storm. I don't, I, I don't think that is um, being, um, I think that's, that's real life. And so uh, what we need to do is to learn to praise him, even in the valleys and the hard times. So this morning, uh, we've got a song that I think if you'll listen to the words uh, carefully, I believe it's by Casting Crowns and Phil Wickham, entitled Praise You in the Storm. And uh, let's listen to the words carefully and then we'll close. Sure, by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. And as the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you And as your mercy falls I lift my hands and praise the God who gives And takes away So I praise you in this storm I will lift my hands For you are who you Strength is almost gone How can I carry on If I can't find you And as the thunder rolls I barely hear your whisper through the rain I'm with you And as your mercy falls I lift my hands and praise the God who gave
You are, Lord. I will praise you in this storm. 